0: So let's start in Genesis 1. I'm going to read 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Guys, right away, opening verses. Do you see the Trinity? Here in these first three verses, we have all three of the natures of God. We have Father God, the covenantal three-in-one God. We have the Son, the Word of God, and we have the Spirit. So guys, what we need to picture is the three-in-one God is like poised and ready to create. This is so beautiful to think that they've existed for all of time and knew the plan Once time began, and now this is the moment, poised and ready to create, the Father initiates it, the Word, Jesus, the Word goes out, and the Spirit, it says, is hovering, like He's up to bat. This isn't all hands on deck for the three in one God. They are all going to be involved in this moment of creation. God said, let there be light, and the Word of God created light. And as, if we were to go through slowly into Genesis 1 and then read it again in Genesis 2, guys, what we would see is that for three days of creation, God formed. And then for three days, he filled it. It's actually beautifully organized. He's going to form the waters, and then he's going to fill the waters. He's going to form the air, the sky, and then he's going to fill it with birds. He's going to form the land, and then he's going to fill the land. And it's just this beautiful little nod to God being a God of order. So guys, as we look at these stories, I want to add another Bible study tool kind of to our box. Last week, we talked about the really important question of what does this text teach us about God? What are we supposed to learn about him? What I want us to pick up this week is thinking about who was this originally written for? Was Genesis 1 originally written for an auditorium full of women in Tiffin? Or maybe was there an audience that came before us? And what difference does it make? So that'll be our second soul. So tonight, guys, what we need to realize is that Genesis was written by Moses. And so Genesis was first read to the people that we would associate with the book of Exodus. Does that make sense? So Moses, after he had led the people out of Egypt and they were wandering around in the desert, Moses was receiving this story that had happened before his time. He would go into the tent of the meeting and the Spirit of God would essentially transcribe this to him and he wrote down the story and then he would share this story with the Israelites who were wandering through through the desert, the Israelites who had not yet entered into the promised land. And so we need to see it through their lens. We need to think, how would they be receiving this? It's pretty cool because... We're going to get to their part of the story, but if you think about it, the Israelites had just received a covenant themselves. They had just left Mount Sinai, where Moses had come down with the Ten Commandments and with the law and with the covenant, the old covenant. So they would be reading or hearing Genesis as a story of covenant. They would read what you guys read this week. They would hear about how God was creating a people that he chose to be close to. They would read about how God walked in a garden, an abundant garden with his children. It's those children of God who had just received a covenant themselves. So guys, in chapters one and two, what they were hearing about is this God who said to his children, to his young children, you will rule for me, I'm I'm giving you my image, you will look like me, you will work for me. You're going to take my image, you're going to take my goodness and you're going to bust it out of the walls of Eden. You're going to fill the whole earth with it with this goodness, with this glory. This was the purpose from the beginning of time. Is that God had a plan for his glory and it involved his children. And God called it good. God called it very good. As you saw in your homework But we know where the story goes. Adam and Eve forfeit the goodness. They broke this early covenant that God had initiated with them. Guys, why did they do that? What exactly did they do that was so wrong? See, guys, they were intended to receive goodness from the Father. But instead, they reached for it. We get that difference, right? They were supposed to receive kind of this posture, receive goodness from God, but instead we get this image of Eve reaching and taking what she thinks is good. Instead of trusting their father, instead of trusting the promises of the covenant, they took. Instead of representing God, they rivaled him. Why would they do that? Why would they so quickly break the covenant with God? So many of your answers out there when you were talking about what is this early nature of God's relationship with his children. You said, he's a father, it's loving, it's abundant, it's extravagant, it sounds amazing. And so we shouldn't just blow through chapter three and and not question why would they do this? It should shock us, even though we've read it a million times. Act like you're hearing it for the first time. Why would they do this? And the next question is, this has to be the end, right? There's no way that this original purpose of God's image bearers going out into the world and spreading his glory, there's no way this could still work. This must be the end of this covenant story. The best way I can sum up where the storyline goes from here was texted to me as a screenshot this week. And if I, I wish I could put it up on the screen, but instead I'm gonna act it out. This is how it goes. Picture a text thread, okay? This is what we need to understand about covenants, guys. If we understand anything, this will carry us through this study. On this side is the children of God. On that side is God. Are we, are we all together so far? Okay. Over here, children of God. I think we should break up. No. Okay. Isn't that great? Doesn't that sum it up, what, what we found in the first three chapters of the Bible, and then on? We mess up, or we don't like something that God does, or we're not feeling it, or whatever reason. There's so many, and we say, I think we should break up. We, you should leave us, or we want to leave you, God. God of covenant says no, and we have no choice but to say okay. That's what covenants is all about. And so that led us to Genesis 3, 14 through 15. So guys, will you actually take a look at this with me? This is so important. Genesis 3, 14 through 15, guys. Scholars will call this the covenant of grace. This is after sin has happened. This is after the betrayal, the rebellion has happened. And God has confronted them. And everyone is is pointing away, playing the blame game. God has just talked to the woman, said, what have you done? And the woman says, The serpent deceived me and I ate. In 14, you kind of picture God pivoting to the serpent and saying, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Guys, what exactly is being promised here in this covenant of grace? We can't go any further until we understand what he is saying to the serpent. He is saying that somebody is going to come from this woman, the seed of the woman. Someone is going to come, and as you wound him, as you bite him on the heel, he will kill you. He will destroy you. He will crush your head. As he does, you will bite his heel. But this is the promise of God. And guys, what we have to understand is the rest of the Bible, from this verse, the rest of the Bible hangs on this promise. This this creates the suspense and the tension for the whole huge story of the Bible. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first Gospel. And we're not going to save it for like the last week of study and the last minute where I say, it's Jesus. I'm telling you right now, this in Genesis 3 is a promise for Jesus. Jesus would come and through his death, through his wounding, he would kill Satan, he would defeat evil. This is the hinge on which the whole story hangs. Guys, it's actually in this moment that the death sentence is put on the serpent that we experience the good, good judgment of God as that judgment falls on the serpent. From this point on, kind of think of it as we the readers, even though we're not the first readers, we are scanning the storyline of the Bible and we're saying, oh, is he here now? Is he here now? Is this the promised one? The one that was promised from God when he cursed the serpent? That's what keeps the story moving on. That's how we see it as one big story. And there's actually like this kind of sad moment, just verses later, where actually when Eve has her first son, in her response, we actually could see that she thinks he was the promised one. She had no idea how long and drawn out the story would be. What a moment of of grief and, and disappointment. And yet, we think it's good that she had hope in that moment. Who is the one who will come and who will remedy what sin has damaged, what sin has broken? So we ask, what does this teach us about God? Guys, this is really good news. Even if you've heard it before, let me tell you again. We realize in this moment that God has not been caught on his heels. That God's purpose has not been scrapped. It has not been terminated. This verse is our hope. His purpose was not so fragile that it was thrown out with just his children rebelling. Okay, so we continue to move along the storyline to where we get to Noah. And we took a couple days to study his story, which is not near enough time, guys, like I'm going to say every week. Hopefully this just makes us want to go and study slower and more deeply of these stories. But guys, about 10 generations later, we find the story of Noah. And what is the scene? Go ahead and turn forward now just a couple pages. And let's jump into chapter 6. What is the scene as Noah's story opens? I'm going to start reading in verse 5. I want you to listen for the repeated words. When the Lord saw the human wickedness, that it was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. You guys hear that repetition of evil." And corruption. That is the scene. So we're supposed to ask how evil, how corrupt? And the author, Moses, is telling us very corrupt, very evil. It seems to be getting darker and more evil with time, that rebellion is no longer contained inside Eden around a tree. As mankind has filled the earth, there is only a small remnant of faithful men, and everyone else is looking a lot more like the seed of the serpent. There's a small line, and that is the line that we find Noah in. But overall, the moral trajectory of the world, guys, it has plummeted in just 10 generations. Didn't we just read, like a couple pages ago, that it was good, very good. And we've already spiraled down to this point, to the point where God is grieved, and we hear those relational words. God, as a father, grieved at the status of his his world. So then the question is, okay, so has God just had it up to here? Is God's patience no more? Has his loving kindness ceased? Is he just frustrated? But we see Noah, and maybe we feel a little bit of hope, because we see how he is described. We feel hopeful because it says that he's blameless, it says that he's righteous, and that he walks with God. Let's say it again. It's relational language. It's covenantal language. So, didn't we ask the question, wait, so Noah was sinless? I'm confused. Noah Noah was the only man east of Eden who was sinless, and that's how he got on the ark? And maybe more questions arise. Guys, but actually what that means, when it says that Noah found favor with God, it can be better translated as Noah found grace from God. Noah found grace from God, and this is really, really important for us to understand this part of the story. If that's how it's best translated, then what we understand then is that grace came first, and that's what made him righteous. Grace first and then obedience. So not obedience and then salvation, but grace and then salvation. Do you guys remember who we said was the first audience? The freshly liberated Israelites, the children of God. Do you know their story? Do you remember when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go? And then there's plagues, ten plagues. And this was their deliverance. They had found grace from the Lord. And then it was after their salvation. It was after their deliverance from slavery, then that God gave them the law. It was then that God gave them the Ten Commandments. So here they are, they're hearing Moses read the story of Genesis to them. And they're realizing, maybe they're putting together pieces almost like a puzzle where they're saying, oh my goodness, that's my story. That's our story. God didn't wait to save us for us to earn it. He saved us while we were still slaves. He saved us before we even had the law, before we could even follow it. He saved us. And then he showed us how to live as his children. They would see echoes of their story in Noah's story. Noah found grace from the Lord and it is that grace that prompted him to believe in the Lord and it was that belief, that faith that prompted him to obey. And where do we see him obey? It's that he built the ark. What was it about Noah's faith that made him do something that was so hard? The ark took like 98 years to build, guys. For 98 years, he had to sit in this kind of where this faith is stretched paper thin every day, building an ark for rains that had not yet come. That is faith. But it started with God initiating with him, with God extending grace and walking with him. What was the difference that we saw in Noah compared to Adam and Eve? God came to Noah and he warned him. What did he warn him about? Death, right? He said, I'm sending a flood. I'm going to wipe out everyone. He warned him about death, about chaos, about destruction. Noah believed this warning about death. But we just read the story of Adam and Eve, and it contrasts greatly. Because Adam and Eve doubted God's word. The serpent came to them and said, You will not surely die. And he hooked onto the doubt within them, the sin without hooking onto the doubt within. And this is where our stories differ greatly. I mean, if you think about it, both Adam's story and Noah's story are a story about God promising life. That's a great way to summarize both of these covenants God is promising life. In both story, God is offering life to his children if they obey. Maybe we would even see that in the covenant with Adam, maybe the sign of that covenant is the tree of life. But in Eden, when that serpent with his forked tongue suggested, did God really say that you would die? And he just comes back. You surely will not die. What is it that they got wrong? Maybe it's that they doubted God's love. Maybe it's that they doubted God's goodness. Oh, he is, he's more like a boss that's holding out on me, not a loving father who's overflowing in goodness. But maybe it wasn't just that they doubted his goodness and his love. Maybe they doubted what it was that he hated. Maybe they doubted how very much God hated sin. And therefore they thought, oh, we will not surely die. We can do things our own way, maybe just this once, maybe just a little bit, but we will not surely die. They did not believe that God hates sin and therefore would judge the sinner. And therefore they didn't obey. And they rivaled him. And guys, this is where we have this great opportunity to pause and to think about where this might be true in our lives. Maybe we don't know exactly why Adam and Eve broke their word, why he broke the covenant with God. But what I do know is that I break my word all the time, in big ways and in little ways, and in big ways that I think are little ways. Why do I do that? It takes a couple layers to get there, but I think so often what it comes down to in my life is that I am doubting God's love God's goodness but I think I doubt that he hates sin I've convinced myself I've watered it down enough that I don't think that there will actually be a cost to my sin I doubt the extent to which he hates it and when that's true then I start compromising I believe that so often, guys, we have convinced ourselves that small sins don't have consequences. Do you, do you see this? Do you get what I'm saying? Guys, don't we so often think, oh, it's just a little complaining. It's just a little temper. It's just, it's just a little lust. Or maybe we say it more like this, oh, that's not porn. That's just a love scene in a movie. That's not porn. It's just, it's just a romance novel. Oh, that's not slander. That's not gossip. I'm just processing. Right? So often either the tempter without or the sin within me convinces myself that there are no wages to sin. So guys, is there an area in your life where you are taking instead of trusting. What would that look like? Are there areas of your life where you're reaching out for control, reaching for what you have deemed is good? God is the definer of good and evil. He holds the knowledge of what is good and evil. But man, sometimes I mix that up and I water it down until I have my own definition of what is good. Because, what does it look like for a room like this for us to repent in those areas? Did God really say? When we hear that, we answer back yes. Yes, He did. And it came from the voice of a father, a loving father. So let's, let's pick up Noah's story again, guys. We read this flood narrative. And it was a lot of reading this week, guys. It was a lot to move through. And so many questions are going to come up in a story like the flood. But what we need to understand, if we understand nothing else, or what we need to at least start with is God hates sin and will judge it. It's not a very feel-good line, but God hates sin and will judge it. So then we had the question, oh, maybe this was a bad day for God. Right? Maybe he had, maybe this is what we would call a justice day. On his day of justice, this is when he brings his wrath. But I think as we study the story, what we can see, guys, is his day of justice is also his day of mercy. And we looked for that, guys. We saw in the timeline of the story that the clouds of this flood did not build up overnight. The underground springs did not erupt within minutes. We read that this story was so drawn out, even just a hundred years to build that ark. God's judgment therefore wasn't a moment of a bad temper for God. It wasn't just an emotional moment for him. This restraint that God shows teaches us about his character. It shows us that this flood was purposeful and meaningful, not reactive. And there's this beautiful little detail where it says that God closed the ark. It was by God's power that the ark was closed. It's like the story is saying until that very last minute, hey, the ark is open. You almost get this feel that if anyone else would have repented, those corrupt evil people, if they would have repented, then they would have been welcomed on the ark. The door is still open until that last minute, and so God shuts it. His heart is revealed in this moment. Guys, he is not just a king who loves justice. He is a father who loves his children. And to make sure that we are understanding his heart correctly, guys, we allow the Bible to teach the Bible. And in Ezekiel 33, we hear it pretty clearly. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live turn turn from your evil ways why will you die do you hear his heart in that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked what else do we see in this big story as the floods come as as the destruction begins. I had never seen this before this, doing this study, guys. But what we are seeing right here as the corrupt evil men of that generation are dying is that already God is keeping his promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. What did he promise to do? To crush evil. And in this day, in Noah's day, the evil was running rampant. And God is already coming through on his promise. It's going to be a long time before Jesus comes. But already there is a taste here that God will destroy evil. God will conquer. God will have the victory. So the story of the flood, it teaches us about sin. It teaches us about God's character. And it, as, it, as it is a story about wrath, the surprise is that it features his mercy. It features his grace. Guys, God is both just and merciful. Here's the crazy part. At the same time. We try and say it every study. Guys, God does not do wrathful things. God God does not do acts of justice. God is just. God does not just do acts of love. He is love. He does not turn off his wrath so that he can turn on his mercy. He is both at all times. That includes the story of the flood. A story that so quickly just looks like one of wrath is actually one of mercy and grace at the same time. Guys, in the story, his justice created the need for salvation. His mercy created the means for it. That helps me understand it more. I'll say it again, guys. His justice created the need for salvation. His mercy created the means for it. And it's at this point in the story that we're led to God making a covenant with Noah. So turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, this is now the first time that we're actually going to see the explicit use of the word covenant. And I'm just going to start, I'm just going to read a couple, well actually starting at, in, The first part of chapter 9, guys, here's what we see. So they they get off of, of the ark. God blesses Noah and his sons. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we obviously saw that that was a point of repetition. But then God goes through these things. He's kind of setting out the new game plan. And the first thing he talks about is mankind's relationship with the creatures, with the animals. And he's giving them a dominion over them. It's like he's protecting them from the animals. And then he goes on to talking about murder. And how there will be a penalty for murder. And so he's protecting um, mankind from evil men. But then he goes on and he starts talking about the covenant. Verse 9. Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you. Birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you. All the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the, cl- in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures." Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. So, what we see here, guys, God is not just protecting Noah and his family from lions and tigers and bears. He is not just protecting them from evil men. There's one more thing that He is protecting them from. Do you see it? Look at the verses about covenant. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out. And then a couple verses later. I am making this covenant with you for all generations. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. Is the third thing that God is protecting. The third kind of protection that God is providing through this covenant. covenant God is protecting his children from himself. see that? Why is this important? Because as we saw in our study, the flood did not change mankind. Mankind was still full of sin. And we know that God doesn't change, so he's still holy and just. So what's to say that God would not have to do this all over again and wash the earth Of the evil and the sin. In his justice, in his wrath, what's to say that he would not do it again? And so God is coming and he is promising protection to his children from himself. It's kind of a weird thought. It's kind of a sobering thought. He is saying, never again in my wrath will I flood the earth. Okay, guys, hang with me. As we went through this story, guys, and we filled out this chart, looking at how this story sounded a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. We saw creation happen in Genesis 1 and 2. And then as the flood came, we saw a a reverse of that pattern. It was a decreation story. And then as the waters dried up, we saw a recreation story, which we're going to see throughout the Bible. And so we saw this pattern, guys, and we saw these repeated numbers, and and even in putting them in charts, I think our Western ears or eyes could miss what's really going on in this story, but I guarantee you that the people that Moses was reading the story to, they would have perked up as they heard this. As they heard this in its original language, what they would notice is that the story of the flood is something called a chiasmus. We are just so fancy this summer, guys. Covenants and chiasmus. I'm, I'm wondering if the plural is chiasmi, perhaps. Drop that, I don't know, that was a joke. <laughs> Thank you. A chiasmus, guys, what it is, is it's this literary tool where they structure a story in a certain way that has a ton of order in it. So I'm just gonna give you a couple examples. So if this is Genesis 7, And then this is over at the end of Genesis 8. Here we have seven days of waiting for a flood. At the very end of the stories, we have seven days of waiting for the second dove. Okay, move in with me one step. Here we have seven days of waiting for the flood repeated. And here we have seven days of waiting for the first dove. Okay, let's go one more in. 40 days of the flood is the next thing that we would read. Are you catching on to these numbers? These are great Bible numbers. Here we have 40 days of waiting. In Genesis 8, 6. And we're getting near to the middle. Here we have 150 days of waters prevailing on the earth, and here we have 150 days of the waters drying out, of the of the waters receding. Okay, do you guys see that chiasmus there? Do you know what is right smack in the middle of it? Look in your Bibles to chapter 8, verse 1. It's as if the author is saying, This is the main point. God remembered Noah. All those questions, all the emotions that come up in a story like this, all of the things we don't know about Genesis or about the flood, this is what we do know. God remembered Noah. In the middle of a terrifying, hard-to-believe story, when so many questions arise, the main point is this: that God remembered his child. Noah is in the thick of it, guys. He is in the thick of the storm, and he was not forgotten by God. The point of the story, therefore, is not Noah remembered God. The point of the story is not everyone look at Noah, everyone be Noah, and you will be saved. Not primarily. It's not about Noah being strong enough. It's not that Noah was patient enough. It's not that he had enough grit to get through something like this. It's not that he was tough enough. It's not that Noah gets an A. That is not the point of this story, guys. This is about God remembering Noah. This is about God holding Noah. God was strong enough. God was patient enough. God's love was thick enough for this. Ladies, God remembers you. Could that be what we need to hear tonight? No matter what storm you're weathering. No matter your circumstance. Do you need to let everything else go to the side and you hear that God remembers you? That you are not forgotten. Do you need to hear, ladies, that your salvation is not based on your performance? God doesn't skim the crowd and say, oh, there's someone who's blameless. There's someone who's already righteous. No, he extends grace. He initiates with us, and it is that grace through faith that saves us. But I think it's after our salvation that we need to be reminded that it is not primarily about us remembering God. It is not about us behaving well that earns his love for us. Ladies, it is not about your grip on God. It is about his grip on you. What happens when we exhale into that? God remembers his children. What happens when we understand this is actually this wonderful, ironic response. We then remember God. We remember the promises of God. We remember our first love. We remember how good it is to walk with God. We remember that sin has consequences and we would rather walk with him and be blameless. But it's a response. It's not earning. But it is an effort that comes from knowing that he holds on to us. Guys, I have the hardest time remembering that God is not my professor who is grading me. You guys ever feel that way? Don't we We go through life and, and so often we think, I, th- I said it last week, that when we're doing well, he loves us more. And when we're struggling, that we're not as lovable and that he's fed up with us. Guys, it's not that kind of relationship with God. This the relationship that we are offered through Christ is a covenant based on his faithfulness. And so, what if we got rid of that, that that way of thinking where we live in this high pressure Christian girl world where we think we have to hold it all together? You know what happens when we think we have to hold it all together? We hide our sin. We don't think that there's any safe place for us to confess it. And if we can't confess it, we don't turn from it. But guys, when we let that pressure go, when we see God as a loving father who remembers us, then we find freedom. So how does this connect with the promise of Genesis 3? How does the story of Noah go back and connect? Still on the same thought from chapter eight, verse one. Guys, when God said that he remembered Noah, that he kept his word to Noah, what we need to realize is that in doing so, he is also remembering his promise in Genesis three fifteen. Because think about it. If Noah had died, if God had not remembered him and Noah had died, in the flood, then there would be no lineage for the snake crusher to come from. If there was no Noah, then there was no faithful remnant that would one day deliver a snake crusher. But in remembering him, the promised offspring of Eve did come. Turn with your Bibles one more time, Matthew 26, as we finish up. In Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, same story, different chapter. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Does that sound familiar? Just read that in Genesis. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed. What does he call God? My Father, if, this, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And the story goes on where he goes back to his disciples and they're asleep again and he comes and he goes back in prayer a second time. He says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He comes back a third time. Goes back and prays a third time, saying the same thing once more. Guys, as we read the scene of a garden, we are cued in. As we picture maybe the olive trees, uh, trees of the Middle East, guys, we are cued into the story of Adam and Eve. It's cued into the story of Noah. Stories from before that have happened in a fruit-bearing garden. We are reminded of Adam and Eve reaching up and asserting their will. We're reminded of Noah who reached for one too many in his garden, revealing that he was a lot like his first parents. But in this garden, we read about Jesus, and he's calling out to his father, the father that has been with him from before the foundations of the world. And we, we hear all these relational words, guys. Again, in 39, you hear this language. He says, my father, and, and picture Guys, we need to actually feel the agony that Christ was in in this moment. He falls face down and he prays, my father, if it is possible. It's like he's saying, is there any other way for the covenant to be fulfilled? Abba, is there any other way? Why is he praying this? Because he knows what's coming. He knows that within moments, guys, there will be betrayal and there will be an arrest and there will be beating. There will be mocking and there will be stripping and there will be a crown of thorns. But he knows what will be far worse than any of that will be that he will take on the wrath of a just God. He is going to take the wrath that we deserved. He is going to take the wrath that the evil men in Noah's day deserved. He knew what is coming, and that is why he is in agony. That's why he's saying, Can this cup pass from me? And yet, in this moment of temptation, like Adam, like Eve, like Noah, being tempted to assert his will, he instead trusts the Father. His heel is about to be bitten by the serpents. And yet he is saying, not my will, but yours. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, his, this son had promised to die. And his eternal covenant with the father. He had promised to die that you and I might live And in a beautiful irony of the serpent's words, because of Jesus, we will surely not die. So how does Jesus fulfill the covenant that was made with Noah? Ultimately, guys, Jesus, God promised to protect his children from himself and from his wrath. And how he did that was by pouring out his wrath. On the beloved Son. So Jesus stood in the gap for us and absorbed the wrath that would have consumed us. And guys, every time we see a rainbow, anywhere we see a rainbow, this is what we recall. This is our covenant refrain that Jesus stood in the gap for us and passed the test where everyone else had failed. Every time we see a rainbow, We recall that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's our gospel. And that gospel trickles down and it changes the way we live. Because I think one of the things that has emerged in this week of study, guys, is that we can all agree that there are times in life when God's will does not look good. If you think of Adam and Eve, God's restriction on them did not look good to them. And sometimes in our own lives, when God says no, when God says don't touch, we don't like that. To the people in Noah's day, of course, a a cleansing flood looked far from good. But guys, there was never a more mysterious good than that day of wrath on Golgotha when Jesus hung on the cross. But it was also a day of mercy. And it was good. It was very good because it brought salvation to those who by grace through faith would believe. So if we can believe that that scene was good, that scene on the cross, then can we not believe that smaller, maybe lesser things that are causing us confusion or doubt, maybe things that God has brought into our life, could we not believe that they are good? That if it is from the Lord, that if he has allowed it in our life, even if it is so hard, even if the loss is so great, can we believe that because he is good, that good will come from it? I don't say that detached from suffering. I don't know what what it looks like for all of you in here, but I know enough to know some of your stories, to know that you need to be reminded that God remembers you, that he has not forgotten you, and that the hardship he has allowed to come into your life That chronic hard relationship, or that loss, or that mental health issue, or that chronic disease, or that surprise that you did not want, that you can trust him with it. That you can entrust that thing, that person, that situation to your loving Father. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we want to love you more. Father, we trust you and we want to trust you more. We believe, please help our unbelief. Thank you that your story remains and that as you remembered your children from Genesis, you remember us now. May that lead us to worship May that draw us to the altar, to surrender, to sacrifice, to trust you. Thank you so much for loving us first, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll see you next week.